Uh, welcome to Crossroads again. If you're new with us, we're on a journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves today in Mark chapter 13, the longest teaching section in Mark, most of it a private audience with his disciples, and a familiar passage if you've studied the Bible or prophecy at all. It's usually referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It occurs three times in the Gospels, in Matthew 24, in Luke 21, and here in Mark 13. And what I'd like to do today is tackle it in its entirety, look at the entire chapter together, and take it in one swoop, uh, because I think it carries a lot of power when you look at it all as one discourse. Uh, This is a chapter we could spend a year on. We could link it with every single eschatological passage in Scripture, uh, and Dr. MacArthur's done that a bunch of times through his his ministry, and if you want to go deep, 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 deep into all the details of the Olivet Discourse, I would recommend listening to John MacArthur's series on Matthew 24. He will tie everything together. This will be an overview, and so I'm not going to skip any of it, but I'm not going to chase down every single question that would rise. I want you to get the movement of it, the sense of it, because Mark 13 occurs in the context of Jesus's Passion Week, right before the Passover feast that's going to start in chapter 14, right after all the the controversies that Jesus has been involved in during this week so far, coming in and out of Jerusalem, uh, being Uh, contended against by all his enemies, and the tension is running super high. And so that's the context of Mark 13. It's a chapter about the end times. It's a chapter about the destruction of the temple. That's been the focus of so much of the movement of this narrative, and I want you to understand what it's here for. And so I want to take it all together in one message and then we'll just keep moving through Mark, okay? That's the plan. I made the plan. If you don't like the plan, it's my fault. I, I, you can send your email complaints to Riley. Uh, he'll be in Cameroon, though. So uh, Mark 13, let's read the whole chapter. Uh, Mark 13, verse 1. The widow just threw her coin in, her coins in, and all that she had to live on. Uh, there in the temple. And then it says in Mark 13, 1, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Be, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts And you'll be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not for you to speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down. Or go in to get anything out of his house. 
And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if then anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, here he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance." But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. This is the word of the living God. For our good, and for our wakefulness. Y2K. You heard of it? Many of you were not born for Y2K, but I was there. And I lived to survive to tell you about it today. Y2K was a foreseen computer glitch that President Bill Clinton at the time said was the first challenge of the new century met and accomplished or something like that. Uh, For most people, it was just another New Year's Eve, the turning of a millennium, the fulfillment of a Prince song, and they were just going to party like it was 1999 because it was 1999. I was in college. I was supposed to be a junior. I probably had sophomore status, which I maintained for the next five years. And I was living in an apartment in Albuquerque, New Mexico with a bunch of other guys who also were youth pastors. I was working at a church and going to college and uh, chipping away at my bachelor's degree and just learning ministry at a church in Albuquerque. And I found myself at home on New Year's Eve uh, with one of my roommates also kind of showed up at the same time. It was probably eight o'clock, and we both looked at each other and said, this is really how we're going to spend Y2K. We had no kind of idea that the world was going to end, though many fringe groups were saying that this could be uh, the start of something apocalyptic because the computers were going to revert to uh, that double decimal at the end of the year. They were going to revert to 1900 instead of 2000, which some of them did. It could cause infrastructure damage, banking system collapse, aviation lose control of towers, all the things. Uh, We were 
you know, 20, in our young 20s, and we really didn't care if, if any infrastructure collapsed. It wouldn't have affected us. Uh, we didn't think. And we were just kind of like, how are we going to remember the experience? We're not going to stay at apartment 421 and wait for our other roommates to get back. Well, I mean, what are we supposed to do? And so I said, we need to go to Mexico because it's a very ATD thing to do. And so we got in my friend Jesse Johnson's BMW, an ancient and aged BMW, but still uh, it, it had a shifter and it was fast. And we, it's about four hours uh, if you drive at regulation speeds from Albuquerque to Ciudad Juarez, the, the border crossing uh, in, between New Mexico and, and Mexico, uh, right near El Paso. And so we drove there in less than four hours and parked uh, across on the El Paso side uh, so that we wouldn't get stuck in the line trying to cross with our car, and we just hoofed it across the border. You didn't need a passport back then. Uh, I don't think they even checked our licenses. We just crossed the border and looked for just to be in Mexico for the stroke of midnight. We had 15 minutes or so uh, before the, the clock turned, and we saw crowds of people that uh, was mostly empty streets. There wasn't a lot of, of revelers out, uh, maybe out of fear of Y2K, but we weren't looking for like the American tequila experience that most uh, people uh, look for when they cross the border. We were youth pastors. Um, so, uh, so we followed Mexicans. We followed a crowd of, of um, people from Juarez, and we wondered where they were going, and they were all kind of headed the same way. We ended up in a, a Roman Catholic church, uh, the cardinal was having a special mass uh, that night at midnight, and we followed all these people to a packed church. He had his red cardinal kind of robe on, and he was doing you know some some service. And at the stroke of midnight, uh, we were with I don't know several hundred Mexicans uh, celebrating the new year uh, as they rang the bells of this church. Uh, we slept in a kind of a sketchy hotel. That was later featured in the film No Country for Old Men, uh, but that's, that's just a side note, and had Pendulce in the morning and drove home. That was Y2K for me. Uh, the point is, the world didn't end. And though Y2K was one of many uh, false prophecies about the end of the world that you could track down, uh, Harold Camping, uh, a radio preacher, uh, announced the end of the world not once, not twice, three different times. Uh, on one of his failed predictions, he said that he forgot to carry uh, the decimal over, which is just fantastic. So the, the, the idea is, is that lots of people talk about the end of the world, and there's probably two uh, different extremes. One uh, that thinks that the point of biblical prophecy is for you to be able to chart out exactly what the future holds, that you might be able to hoard water and supplies and goods and be ready for uh, the apocalypse. Uh, others uh, have an indifferent approach uh, to all things eschatological. They're not concerned about the end times. And they even adopt, even some Christians adopt a kind of posture that says, uh, well, it doesn't really matter. Things will always continue on the way that they have. The problem with that kind of thinking is that things haven't always continued on the way they have. In fact, uh, the world hasn't always existed. And it is very clear from the Bible that the world will come to an end, to a telos, to a culmination. And the problem with the other kind of thinking, the carry the zero decimal kind of thinking, is that Jesus repeatedly said, no man knows the day or the hour. And so the agenda of the Bible when it comes to final things, when it comes to end times, is always an agenda of watchfulness. And that's why I want to approach this chapter in, in its kind of large perspective. And so I think the best way to look at this is to walk through this chapter in, in six movements. It seems to divide naturally into six movements. Uh, verses 1 through 4, we start by looking at the destruction of the temple, and we'll unfold it together 
as we walk through. Again, I won't be able to answer all your questions in this one sermon on Mark 13, but there's lots of resources available for you. Uh, I would start with the gty.org search of Matthew 24. That's MacArthur's most thorough look at the Olivet Discourse. And verses 1 through 4, we'll call the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the temple. Jesus has been going in and out of the temple. As you see in verse 1, he's going out of the temple. And having just condemned the temple system as a system that was about taking and not about giving, as it took from this poor widow, the disciples, one of them, it says in Mark, kind of representing the others that are depicted in Luke and Matthew, Look at the temple from the Mount of Olives. That's across uh, the Kidron Valley. It's the 150 feet higher of elevation. It would have been able to look down on this massive temple complex that Herod had built. The temple had been destroyed a number of times, but was now at a place of almost completion, maybe one more generation before it would be finished in about 67 AD, or at least finished in this form. Uh, This was the Herod temple complex. Herod, the king, had uh, invested a lot of money into it. He was sort of interested in Judaism, though he wasn't Jewish. He was uh, some version of a proselyte, sort of, and and he wanted to uh, rebuild the temple. He wanted a lot of credit for it, and it was being gilded even in Jesus's day with gold and with silver on the outside. And so the disciples would have seen the temple in its increasing completion, constant construction in uh, significant beauty, dating all the way back to not David's time. It was David who wanted to build the temple, but the promise was given to his son Solomon. And so the original temple built by Solomon, constructed with white limestone from the cedars imported from Lebanon and beyond, uh, gilded by the artisans of Israel. Uh, you could read about it in Second Kings 6 and other places in the Old Testament that describe Solomon's temple had been destroyed already and torn down and then rebuilt in Ezra's day and now uh, once again in deportation destroyed and now is being rebuilt yet again. And the disciples are marveling at this temple, the crown jewel of Jerusalem, the the, the hallmark of the horizon. This is, this is the most notable, the most uh, significant. This is, uh, this is a UNESCO kind of a site. This is something that all the travelers would have marveled at, but something that would have been a particular point of pride, of appreciation, of beauty for the Jewish people. And so the disciples say, what wonderful stones. And they're marveling at the stones because they're quite large, probably the size of, of boxcars on a railroad. Uh, big, massive stones, some of which you can still see, foundation stones that comprise the Western Wall in Jerusalem today where the people put their prayers. If you've ever known pilgrims that have gone to the religious sites in Jerusalem and they, they put their little prayers in the cracks of the walls and, and modern Jewish people go and, and pray at that wall and, and put their prayers in the walls and it's a, it's a sacred site, the Western Wall, the temple, which is really a foundational stone uh, stones that remained there, but they are, are massive in, in their scope, and so they're commenting on that. The different buildings that surround the temple, uh, the bronze level, the, the altar, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, there was all these different kind of complexes within the temple uh, for the priests, the the temple itself with the Holy of Holies within it. All of this was, was noticeable and visible from uh, the mountainside where Jesus was with his disciples. And his disciples, like any good uh, Jews, were marveling at the beauty of this cultural centerpiece. And Jesus, in a very shocking statement, says in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The religious system 
that was the cornerstone of the Jewish religion and their cultic practices was going to be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed. The city would be destroyed. The nation would be destroyed. And Jesus prophesies this. Verse 3, as we're sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, again, kind of representing the larger group of disciples. And they ask a very important question. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? This, this complicated, at least two-part question is represented in Matthew's account in similar language. Tell us, this is Matthew 24, 3, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Luke similarly asks sort of a, a compounding question about not just the destruction of the temple. That's the immediate referent that's in this text. But you have to understand, we've, we've heard a lot from Jesus, and the disciples have a lot of confusion about signs and about what's to come. They're asking a series of questions about what's next. The tensions are running high in this, what they don't fully understand to be Jesus's final days on the earth. But they do know what Jesus has already taught them. I mean, all the way back to Mark chapter 3, Jesus has been saying things like, Mark 3.30, Mark 3, yeah, Mark 3 talks about his glory, his glory being revealed, and that a day will come when his Glory will be shown. And so the disciples are, are wondering about Jesus' glory. They would have been wondering about the signs that were asked for in Mark 9 by the religious leaders. And Jesus said he wouldn't give them the sign uh, at this time. They would have been looking at, at that conversation that they had with Jesus in Mark chapter 12 about the vine growers and a time of judgment that was futuristic that Jesus described as the vine yard owner coming and destroying the vine growers and giving the vineyard to others. Uh, they would have heard Jesus after his interaction with the rich young ruler talk about his suffering and foretelling his cross on multiple occasions. He talks about details of his death and deliverance into the hands of the religious leaders and his impending resurrection and death. Uh, they would ask him questions about his glory. Uh, verse 37, grant that we might sit on your right hand and your left in his glory. And so this question about the destruction of the temple isn't only asking about the destruction of the temple. They're asking about the timing for these things, which would be including at least the destruction of the temple, the death of Christ, which they don't totally understand exactly what he means by his impending death, and the ushering in of the kingdom he's been preaching about since the earliest days of his ministry. At least those three things. Uh, you could add to that the timing of final judgment and the glorious coming or returning of the Son of Man, all things that Jesus has referenced or alluded to, but at least these three things are being asked about in relation to their order, the chronology. And in their minds, they, they don't know how it's going to go. Uh, they must be thinking, well, the temple's going to be destroyed. Is, that, is the Son of Man going to die defending the temple? So is it like destruction of the temple and then and then the, the Messiah dies and rises again. And then is that the ushering in of the end of the age? But Jesus spoke so often about the kingdom being among them. And so is, is it kingdom time? Is it going to be this week? Are we going to take over the temple? Are we going to take over Jerusalem? Are we going to commandeer an army? Their, their minds are so mixed up with all that Jesus has been talking about that the word that Jesus gave about the destruction of the temple seems to be an opportunity for them to understand when these things will be and what signs will accompany them and when this age of kingdom will be ushered in. 
Jesus uses this question to provide for them his longest discourse in Mark, this lengthy consideration of the end of the age. And in typical prophetic fashion, he weaves between uh, a time that is at hand, a time that's coming, and a time that is yet to come in the future. And and that's what you'll see as as Jesus describes uh, in these movements where he goes. So first movement, the destruction of the temple, verses one through four, and that very important question. Second movement is, we can call it birth pangs, or the timing of the end. Verse 5 through 13, Jesus depicts life for his disciples in times that should be thought of like contractions. That's what we call them today, Bible language, birth pangs. Uh, Verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. No one misleads you. The word is watch out, keep your eyes open, beware, be awake. Uh, Jesus is calling them to a great level of discernment and care in what he's about to say, to take down his words and to understand what he's saying. Because there will be false prophets. There always were false prophets among God's people. They were dealt with in the Torah as far as punishment goes for them. But false prophets are, are on Jesus's mind And he warns his disciples to be watchful because in verse six, many will come in my name saying I am he and will mislead many. There are lots of false prophets. Some of them I mentioned at the beginning talking about the end time. Some even claim to be uh, Jesus, that he's returned. Uh, There's been uh, folks who claim to be Jesus throughout Latin America. That seems to be a hotbed of fake Jesuses. Uh, and there's even guys in the street today uh, who will tell you that they are Jesus. Uh, some of these movements have picked up steam and followers and ended uh, very badly for those who followed these false Christs. But Jesus tells his disciples that there will be wannabe messiahs, wannabe deliverers, fake kind of antichrists, and in an increasing amount as the last days draw near. And so Jesus describes these days in these birth pang kind of terms. Verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nations will rise up against nation, verse 8, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So this section should help you to not fall into, which I've heard so many times from people. Uh, They've come up to me at church and said, you know, there's this earthquake in Turkey, tragic earthquake a month, a few weeks ago. And every time there's something that makes the news in the world, someone will say to me, this could be the beginning of the end. That's really the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying like the the normal kind of movements of history, the rise and fall of kingdoms, which is not like an overnight thing. That's like big epoch kind of a thing. Uh, The fall of the Roman Empire, the rise of of, uh, kingdoms and countries and the movements of borders and Uh, Russia and Ukraine, and and all the things that happen in any point in history. I mean, since this was written in those 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words, there's been hardly any years where the world has not seen wars and earthquakes and famines somewhere in the world. And that's not a failure of biblical prophecy. That's exactly what Jesus said. He's saying that all that stuff will happen. That's just the normal, ongoing part of the preparation for the end. You would be foolish to say that the world is not going to end. You would be equally foolish to think that you can interpret the things that happen in the normal course of life in a fallen world as sure signs of this, uh, of this fulfillment. And so Jesus says, it is not yet the end. These are merely the beginning of birth pangs. If you've ever had a contraction, I'd like to talk to you about it. 
I'm kidding, I've never had a contraction. Um, but my wife did have some, and I remember when our first baby was was uh, about to be born, and, and you do all the things they tell you, uh, spicy food, and walking around at Costco, because it was, it was August, and it was hot, and our, our apartment in North Hollywood uh, had a dysfunctional air conditioner, and so we would walk in Costco trying to, to bring baby Adeline uh, to town, and we'd never done this before, uh, so, you know, you're, you're a new parent and you're wondering when, when do these mean? What are these contractions, this tightening of muscles? Is this it or, or is these going to go on for a while? The answer is they go on for a while. So much so that there is a pizza place on, in Studio City called Coyote Cafe. I recommend it for your lunch today. Uh, okay Pizza. They have something there called The The Salad. I'm not stuttering. That's the name of the salad. It's two definite articles, the, the salad. And we were told to go there if we wanted to have the baby and eat the, the salad. The, the salad. It's like gorgonzola and walnuts and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I ate the, the salad. Merely had a few bites because she was uncomfortable with birth pangs. And they deliver the salad to your table with all kinds of notebooks testimonials of people who ate the the salad and wrote in it. Our baby was born the day after we ate the the salad. I went into labor at Coyote Pizza Cafe. Um, Anyway, it didn't work for us, but I I did enjoy a good salad. So birth pangs are just that. They're, They're a beginning of a process that signifies the arrival of that, uh, that appointed time. And so all of these are just life in a fallen world, wars and kingdoms and famines and earthquakes uh, in an increasing sense. Verse 9, though, says, be on your guard, not because the earthquakes will be the signatories or the signs that believers should look for, but they are going to be about, and I should say we are going to be about, the work that Jesus put us on. And so remember, Jesus is talking both to his disciples who are present there with him and all those who are going to be receiving this address that will get it from the disciples. And I think that's intentionally put in here. I think Christ is aware of that, so much so that Mark says, let the reader understand And I don't know exactly what Mark is doing when he inserts the let the reader understand or if that's the words of Jesus. There's debate on that. But it is a reminder that Jesus and Mark are both mindful that this teaching is not only for these four disciples representing the 12 or the 12 disciples representing the apostolic age that's to come in the book of Acts. He's readying them for the times that are coming. And we especially see that in verse 9, words that are as important for us to hear as they were for Jesus' first disciples. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. This is the promised persecution that attends all disciples of Jesus In saying that they would be hated by all, it's a reminder that you will not always receive positive and favorable press as a Christian, or in the words of the sermon this morning, there will be people that don't like you. In fact, people that hate you. And just as the ages that have followed Jesus's Olivet Discourse have been marked by the normal uh, progression of history with earthquakes and wars and famines, Christians have always been and are today persecuted for their faith. All over the world, Christians are persecuted, uh, not just by uh, you know, social media canceling your account, but actually persecuted, put in jail, uh, killed, tortured for their faith. This is true in Islamic countries all over the world right now. This is true in certain parts of China, especially in rural areas. Christians are actually persecuted. And Jesus' words were to steady and ready and instill courage in his disciples that when he was gone, they would be treated the same way he was treated. 
And so the idea of persecution is built in to your eschatology. Christians will always be persecuted. They'll always be uh, the, the disenfranchised ones, the minority opinion. They'll always be the ones to look down on in society. And they will receive this kind of uh, harsh treatment. This is all a part of the commission that Jesus gives his disciples. Verse 10 alludes to it. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. This is a good word to those of you who might be overly interested in eschatology. Maybe you're like really hip on prophecy conferences and really hip on, you know, you got a chart in the back of your Bible that spells out the end times. I actually do have a a chart in the back of my Bible that spells out the end times. I wrote it a long time ago and I'm sticking with it. I, I got it. So the priority though has to be for us not solving the chart or calendaring the future. It's fulfilling the mission. Jesus is saying one of the requisites of his return is the gospel being preached to all nations. This should fuel our fervor to evangelize lost people, to invest our lives and our resources into fulfilling the Great Commission and making sure all have heard of his name. After speaking of the gospel being preached, He reminds them of further persecution. When they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you're to say, but say what's given to you in that hour. It's not for you to speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Persecuted Christians from the days of the apostles to the time of the Reformation when many Christians were burned at the stake have found extraordinary comfort in these words that in their dark hour of trial, they could entrust their souls to a faithful creator and know that whatever testimony they give would be one that the Holy Spirit would use, not necessarily to preserve their life, but to ensure their faithful witness. And so Jesus' words are intended to steal and fortify and encourage his disciples in these days of persecution that will lead to the final days of this world. Uh, The nature of the gospel and the divisions it causes is in verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Jesus has already talked about how the gospel brings a sword into family life, that it is no longer a covenant in Israel where families are perpetuating the message, but instead the gospel will even divide uh, siblings and parents and families. And the hatred and animosity that Christians have that Christians are the object of in verse 13 is depicted as hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures the end, he will be saved. Again, aiming us towards the whole point of studying the eschaton, of the fulfillment of all things, the end of all things, and the glorious return of Jesus, the great Christian hope, is that we would be perseverant. That's why the book of Revelation isn't to be ignored. It's an essential bit of information for your perseverance in the faith so that you'll continue on, so that you'll keep following Jesus. Well, the third movement begins in verse 14 all the way to verse 23, and I'll, I'll do this a little quicker. This can be described as the great tribulation, and there's, this is uh, by, I think, every... Mark scholar that I read. This is considered the most difficult chapter in Mark, one of the most difficult chapters in the New Testament, and verse 14 is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. So let's dive in. But when you see the abomination of desolation, the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains." The abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation has so many reference in scriptural history. Jesus is drawing on his disciples' knowledge of the great prophet Daniel and what he wrote in Daniel 9, verse 27, and what he wrote in uh, Daniel chapter 11. Both of those places speak of this abomination of desolation, a kind of time when uh, something is going to happen that can only really be understood as 
awful, as blasphemous, as shocking that's going to happen to the temple by way of desecration. And there are a multitude of examples throughout history where Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled at least partially. The first was almost 200 years before Mark 13, I think 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian king, I think he's Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. I don't want you to get mixed up with Antiochus Epiphanes the third, obviously. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a Syrian king, second century BC, uh, assaulted the temple, surrounded Jerusalem, and slaughtered a pig on the temple altar in the Holy of Holies. Uh, this was uh, accompanied with a massacre of Jewish people that was unparalleled to this time. And uh, he was proclaiming himself to be God and king over all of Israel. It led to the Jewish wars in the intertestamental period that, f- that preceded the coming of Christ. That's not the only time where something like this happened. Uh, one generation from Jesus' time in A.D. 70, during, these, uh, during the Roman occupation, uh, Jerusalem would be razed. Maybe a million Jews were killed in those days. And the temple was raised, torn down, stone by stone in A.D. 70. And this must be a reference, at least in the way it's a reference to 167 B.C., a partial fulfillment of this idea that there are antichrists that are going to desecrate the temple and all be pointing to an increased persecution of Christians. Uh, this standing where he does not belong is probably a reference to the holy place and to the temple. And that standing is some kind of, uh, it's a word that means a long period of time. And so there's a way to understand this chapter that I think is very bad, where you try to cram all the events described here into AD 70. That's called preterism. And it's probably my least favorite end times viewpoint. And if you love the Bible, it'll be your least favorite end times viewpoint. It's called preterism or a historical kind of view. Uh, it's, it's not held by very many people because it's, well, untenable, basically. Uh, you can't cram all this into AD 70. Watch the sun and the moon fall out of the sky in verse 26. Just didn't happen in AD 70. Um, it wasn't the only persecution. Verse 19, I could give you a hundred reasons, but I understand this to be a futuristic reference to something that will happen in the end times, something that is uh, seen in images and in parts throughout history, but in the future, we'll have a final and full fulfillment that they're being warned about. I don't think it's irrelevant to AD 70, just as it isn't irrelevant to what happened in BC 167. But all of this is pointing towards a future full fulfillment that Daniel talks about that is a period that is seven years long, according to Daniel 12, chapter 12, verse 11, that has a a division from three and a half to three and a half uh, years. And this abomination thing seems to be indicated by Daniel and by the book of Revelation in chapter 12, verse 6, as happening at that middle point of this great tribulation. Now, I just opened a whole can of worms there, and the best thing to do in that situation is put the worms back in, put the lid on, and keep reading. Verse 15, the one who's on the housetop must not go down, get anything out of his house. The one who's in the field should not go back in his coat. Warning to the pregnant, a warning about winter. Verse 19, one of the reasons I don't think this is exclusively a reference to AD 70, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. The massacre of the Jews in AD 70 is not the worst massacre of the Jews we've ever seen in history. It's not the only destruction of the temple we've ever seen in history. And so it just doesn't fit to make verse 19 work for AD 70 and AD 70 alone, in my humble opinion, and the Reverend John MacArthur. So verse 20, unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, 
whom he chose, he shortened the days. This is talking about those who are believers, who are in those days, most likely, not just talking about Jewish people, but followers of Jesus, whose lives will be preserved, even though these are the darkest days in the history of the church and in the history of the world, days that are coming, days that we refer to as the great tribulation. Uh, If you're looking for a chart, it occurs immediately following the rapture of the church, uh, described in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and spelled out in the book of Revelation in a chronological sense. So, I said I was putting the lid on it, but I just opened the thing back up and a worm came out. That was my bad. Uh, okay, so where are we? We're, we're at verse 21. Still signs that are false. Behold, here's the Christ. Behold, he's there. Do not believe him. False Christ and false prophets will arise. Show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. What is that talking about? It's talking about the whole point of what Jesus is saying is the reason he's giving you this information is for your perseverance not for your chart. It's for your perseverance. It's for your increased faithfulness. It's not for you to have everything figured out in the future. That's not what, the, that what biblical prophecy is for. Jesus is warning us so that when these things happen and they become very clear to those of us who live in those days, we will be able to say Jesus was right and Jesus equipped us perfectly for these troubles. Fourth movement, verse 24 to 27, the coming of the Son of Man. This is the return of Christ. There are no Christians who do not affirm the physical, bodily return of Jesus. It is core Christian theology. This isn't about the timing of the rapture. This isn't about the nature or length of the tribulation. This is not about the timing and nature of the millennium. This is the return of Christ, something that all Christians anticipate that is the crowning mark of the eschaton. It's described in verses 24 to 27. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. That's likely a reference to the Shekinah glory, the the presence of God in theophany with great power and glory. And he'll send forth the angels, will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, And so that is the glorious return of Christ. That is Christ returning in judgment, in power, in glory, to bring everything to final culmination. It is a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of rescue. It's a day of the Lord, and it's described there beautifully in verses 24 to 27. MacArthur wrote a whole book about it called The Return of Christ, and I would recommend it to you, and there's lots of passages that correlate. Uh, the, The next movement is verses 28 and following to 31, and it's the lesson of the fig tree. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I take that to mean not the generation Jesus is talking to, but the generation Jesus is talking about. Because we're in trouble if the sun fell out of the sky and the stars fell out of the sky before all the disciples died. Would you agree? Same. Okay, so truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The lesson of the fig tree is a lesson about readiness, a lesson about watchfulness, a lesson about knowing the inevitability of these things and trusting the Lord and his word with the results. A final movement, verse 32 to 37, is a warning to wakefulness, and it's the whole point on the eve of Jesus in Gethsemane, of eating his final Passover meal, of his betrayal and his arrest, mindful in the heart of the Son of Man, listen to these words. Take heed, keep on the alert, 
for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in evening at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Eschatology, the study of final things, exists for our faithful perseverance and our watchfulness. And that doesn't mean we're being watchful of the times, the history, the movements. We're watchful for the return of our Lord. That's what we're excited about. That's what we're eager to experience. And so we can trust that the Lord will unfold this in his time, that our confidence can increase, that our faithfulness is expected, and that we are watchful knowing that our king is coming back. And so we wait for Jesus' return. We pray for Jesus' return. And more than anything else, we tell others that Jesus is coming back. And that's the message that we take to a lost and dying world with every expectation that God will use that message to accomplish all his good purposes in this world. And we say, Maranatha, Jesus, come quickly. Father, thank you for this word about wakefulness, of watchfulness, from birth pangs to the destruction of the temple to the great tribulation to the coming of the Son of Man to that tender branch of the fig tree waiting for it to sprout. We know and trust that you have all things in your hands. Every day of our lives is numbered and every day and page of the calendar of history is before us. And so, Father, will you give us the faith to trust you the perseverance to keep following you and the watchfulness to warn others that a great day of judgment and rescue is at hand, that the Jesus who came incarnate to lead a righteous life and die in our place and rise again will return in power and glory and authority and everything will be set right. Father, I pray that we would be right, made right and forgiven by the blood of Christ in anticipation for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.